And here we go, the Downward Facing Spiritual Spiral Podcast. My name is Eddie Cohn, the host, creator, producer of the show. Thrilled to welcome John Maddox to the show. He's a film composer. He composes music for video games, TV shows, and he's a drummer also. Gosh, I completely forgot. He's also a drummer. He can be found on Instagram at John Maddox, also at John Maddox Drums. And if you know anything about me, I love music. I love talking about music and bands and sort of the impact that technology, the good and the bad, has had on musicians' lives. So John and I have a really great talk about music. We talk about social media, the impact of tech. We also talk about Cal Newport. He wrote a book called Digital Minimalism, which I think should be read by everybody. You know, we think before you listen to the conversation, I I just, again, I, I think we just sort of embrace technology. We embrace Instagram and Facebook and our phones and without really thinking too much beyond the convenience factor of tech. It just seems like we live in this day and age now where we have to embrace everything that is being thrown in our faces. I'm going to talk, I'm going to record a podcast actually the next couple of days about a few things that happened on my trip to San Francisco, conversation I had with my Uber driver. But wow, in the meantime, go out and listen to Ezra Klein's podcast where he's speaking to Dave Edgers, an author, writer. And like the last hour of the podcast, they talk about just how we all sort of, <laughs> Leo, settle down, just how we embrace technology and what we're willing to give up in order to have a more convenient life. Dave doesn't have Wi-Fi. He doesn't have a smartphone. And while that may seem extreme, I think as creators, as writers, maybe it's not such a bad idea. Because I really do believe in order for us to get below the surface, to dive deep and concentrate and work on our craft and write a book or write a song, it requires hours with no distractions. And I think ultimately the convenience factor and the ease in which technology sort of enters our lives and makes us feel like we're saving time. It almost feels, if we're not careful, and that's sort of what this show is about, bringing awareness to the impact of technology, if we're not careful, our lives are going to be controlled by our technology devices. We are going to be manipulated by Instagram, Facebook, Google, Amazon, and our ability to concentrate and think for ourselves is going to be ripped out from underneath us. And I think it's happened to millions of people already. And this show is about bringing awareness to the impact of tech, talk about how we deal with it. Again, I'm not thinking you shouldn't go out and buy an iPhone. I think you should use Uber. I think technology does make our lives easier. But if we're not careful, it's going to literally control everything, every choice that you make virtually every single day. It's powerful. And I think it's worth talking about. And I think, again, go out and buy Cal Newport's book, Digital Minimalism. I really think he talks. Sometimes I think people speak about it more clearly than I do. But, you know, the like feature of Instagram has completely 
change the way people think about themselves. I, I just uh, just for an example, and I think Hal Newport's book really clearly shows how if you're not more aware, if you're not aware of your patterns and your own decision making, pretty soon technology will manipulate you and control every facet of your life. Without further ado, really excited that John joined me on the show today. You know, I met him, I feel like I met him a few years ago via LinkedIn. It sounds strange to say we met via LinkedIn, but I feel like maybe that's how we met. And he and I have a lot of mutual friends in the music industry, and we talk about music, we talk about tech, social media, drumming, the impact that tech has had on his life. And it's a really great conversation. I got to know him better. And and again, the point of this show is to also bring the art of conversation, face-to-face conversation, back into our lives. So John, again, he can be found on Instagram at John Maddox, also John Maddox Drums, because he's also a drummer. And if you dig the show, please share it with friends. Head over to iTunes, write a quick review, or give it a five star. You can also support my show directly by visiting my Patreon, which is patreon.com backslash Eddie Cohn. And that's pretty much it. Oh my God, I totally just realized I just forgot two things. Well, I typically play, you know, music throughout the show, or I insert music or different sort of music files throughout my podcast. Well, today, just to let you know, I include two songs that John wrote. Uh, the first one's called Color Field, which, you know, is about 35, 40 minutes into the show. And I introduced the song. And I also closed today's show with one of his songs as well. It's called Exit to Love. It's got a really cool vibe. And I felt it was really cool that he shared some music. And I wanted to play it on the show. So again, first one is called Color Field. It's about a half hour in. And I closed today's show with a track that he produced and created called Exit to Love. So yeah, so that's it. So as always, thank you so much for listening and being a part of the Downward Facing Spiritual Spiral Podcast. You sound good. I try. (laughs) Um, It's, uh, yeah, I I felt nervous. You're, you know, you're a musician, sound guy. I wanted all this stuff to sound good. I'm not judgmental. <laughs> I am of myself. I, I, I may have a big ego, but I'm not judgmental. <laughs> That's a thing. You got to keep your ego in check. Right? Yeah. Well, I'm going to, I'm going to increase your ego. I'm going to do something a little different today. Okay. I'm going to play one of your songs. Okay. Is that cool? Yeah. Cause I was listening to it earlier today. You sent it to me a while ago on Bandcamp. Huh. You did. You know, I was actually thinking I could give you. Um, I mean, I know I, what I. One thing I do like about your podcast are the breaks, because sometimes. Yeah. I mean, it's it. It really depends on on the guest, but I like how you kind of break it up and then you do a little bit of music and then yeah. you, you come back to something. It's it's just a nice little breather, which I like. I agree, and it's not a commercial, not yet. <laughs> so, how close are you to say monetizing your podcast? You know, I don't know. I mean, I'd like to think maybe another six months. You know, I'm I'm I've been featured on the Podbean website for the last two months. Really? And I, I know there's more. You know, I could do this live and YouTube and there's and more video. But as you said, it's a time thing, 
And I, this still like, let's say we talk for an hour and a half, then it's going to take two hours to edit it. And then I'm going to record an intro. Um, that takes maybe half hour, then the whole uploading and getting and writing the bio or the, the information for it. So that's probably 30 minutes. So we're talking, you know, a five hour thing. It's a lot of time. Right. And as, as you said, but it has been so rewarding. And as I say on my podcast all the time, just sharing my thoughts is cathartic in a weird sort of way. And also being able to sit down and it almost feels like we live in a day and age now where to get somebody's attention for an hour and a half requires you to be in front of a microphone. So you can't actually have your phone on. There's no distractions. You're listening to each other in headphones and you actually like have each other's attention. It's crazy, but it almost feels like that's the world that we've sort of become. And then you're providing something to the people who are listening, too, because I think one of the things about social media in general is this idea that you're not just promoting yourself like, hey, check me out. I'm so cool. Yeah. It's more about here's something to think about or here's something to learn or here's something to be inspired by. Yeah, this is the thing that I struggle with, though, is that, and I was listening to Ed Norton on a podcast. Oh, yeah. I, I heard one of those. He was talking about this idea, and I think maybe you listened, I don't know, about being active and passive. And I do think we live in a day and age now where everybody is passive, vegging out, numbing out, staring at six hours worth of Netflix, consuming Spotify as quickly as you can. And I'm hoping... Even listening to a podcast, I mean, he was saying that we, you know, we're in this day and age now where we clearly are craving the long form. And part of me thinks possibly, but part of me also thinks it's just another sort of technological thing going on where people are just sort of numbing out, consuming, consuming, listening, but not actually talking, not actually being active, not actually going out, getting off their ass and producing something. So I, I have, I hope that. Sure, I'm creating some thoughtful content, but I do believe in this. I don't want you to think, forget about the fact that I'm still going to play one of your songs. <laughs> but this does relate, though, to something that I was thinking about. And I want to talk to you about it was Coldplay just released a new record yesterday. So did Beck. And they're two of my favorite artists, at least originally. I think the records are both pretty mediocre at best. The Coldplay one, it almost feels like there's demo, demo, then there's like a string thing, and then they're like singing with a choir, and then finally there's actually a band-sounding song. And I do think, because I've been saying this for years, but I finally said it a year ago on my podcast, I think technology and the distractions is getting the way of higher quality creative content. And it's been... I don't know how long where I've actually listened to a record from beginning to end because I was that captivated by like sea change or parachutes or, you know, wildflowers from Tom Petty. I just, I think those days may be over. It's definitely changed. And, you know, a lot of people talk that we live in a singles market again. Like it started out in the fifties and sixties as selling singles. Like that's what they used to call records, you know, yeah, a record was a single and then when the album format came out in the 70s and onward, it's what you talk, just talked about. It's like creating a, a sonic experience that you'd listen to 40 minutes. Or, yeah. or, and, and those songs and those albums were curated in such a way that they knew that those people that would buy them, like when we were kids, we would actually sit down and listen to the album pretty much from start to finish with no 
notifications going off on our devices because we didn't have devices. Yeah. So I think that there was an awareness that you were creating an, an experience for somebody for that amount of time. Like the greatest example is like Pink Floyd, The Wall, which is like one of my favorite all time albums. To this day, it remains one of my all time favorite albums. And you kind of have to listen to it from beginning to end. I mean, you don't have to, but that's the way it was created. It's like reading yeah. It's like reading a book. You don't just pop a chapter in a Stephen King book or something and go, oh, yeah, that was a good chapter. It's like, no, you have to read the whole thing from yeah. start to finish. But in terms of like new artists and what they're doing, it's hard to say. I mean, think about just artists in general who maybe had a really good first record or two records and then things after that weren't quite so great. Like Michael Jackson comes to mind, mm-hmm. you know, like I, I worked, worked with somebody who actually worked with Michael Jackson in the studio before, like uh, Thriller and Bad and, and those records. And then after those records came out, at least my perception of Michael Jackson, just to use an example, is he became a little more, I don't know, less, he, he was less big in the States anyway. He was, you know, there was not another thriller that came out and wowed everybody. Yeah. But that was just the States. And I know he did big internationally, but we're kind of talking about here. And I just think, you know, there's a little, it's not like an expiration date, you know, like in a carton of milk, but there is kind of a, you know, a, t- a time frame when I think an artist can strike when they're creatively on their high moment and just that moment in time when the music that they're recording just strikes a chord with people. I, I, you know, this is the thing. I feel as though, and this will sort of backtrack, I think Napster and Spotify devalued the creative process for music or for artists, musicians. And I think we're living in a day and age now where people have never spent any money on an album. And I think that attitude, it has, it's trickled down to movies. You know, Movie Pass came out. Ultimately, it wasn't successful, but people just want a subscription-based service for $15 a month, get as many movies as I can. I, and that's part of the goal of my podcast also is sort of talk about you know, there is a lot of work involved in creating music and it's time and it's money and all this gear we buy is expensive. And could Columbia of Records 10, 15 years ago spent less on their albums? Probably. But a lot of the money, you, you can't spend less when it comes to touring. You can't spend less when it comes to the the stage setup and the travel and then the crew. I mean, these things cost thousands and thousands of dollars. And back then it was sort of hoped that the album would get some attention and then people would buy the record. And then it sort of spins to a place where then the band is worth, it's worth touring this record because people are buying it. And now it's that whole system. What's your take on how much music has shifted because of I think Spotify and Napster and people's attitude about not wanting to spend money on art anymore. But Well, I think it's kind of back to what your podcast is about and talking about technology. And oftentimes it's about the bad part of technology and addiction and all that sort of thing. But I think because there's so much that we can do now, because when we were younger, music was such a big thing. It was one of the only things we did like after school because it wasn't in competition with a phone. It wasn't in competition with, 
video games and you know mm. all these things that we had at our disposal it was either you know go out ride your BMX bike you know make ramps and jump over your friends and skateboard or whatever or you would you know go in and and listen to music i remember a time when there wasn't like all these cable channels like if you wanted to watch cartoons or something kid related that we would watch after school there really wasn't that much there were no networks just for kids doing kid stuff 24 hours a day so it kind of feels like the demand uh, for what you're talking about in terms of music isn't what it was. Like people, and it's just like what you're talking about in terms of the quality of the music. I don't think audiences are as demanding of their artists as they were in the mm. past. I mean, hardcore artists will always be like that. And every artist will have its hardcore followers that are, you know, just waiting for every single thing, you know, every little nugget to come out of that artist. But in terms of like the mainstream and huge, it's like, there's a reason why I don't know if you've ever like gone on to like the billboard top albums of, of years or number one singles. I did that. Well, it was a couple of years ago now. And I was just amazed at like, it was Beyonce, Beyonce, like just, and there were fewer and fewer artists who had like number one albums and number one singles compared to if you go say to the the 60s or the 70s when you know in the 70s you might have like Captain and Tennille and Bachman Turner Overdrive and you know all these different kind of much more different variety wider variety of artists that were selling number one records yeah we don't have that now I mean part of that is I know you've talked about like the corporate people involved and sure they're they're not signing and developing artists like they used to. But part of me thinks that people aren't demanding that because if they were, then they would sign somebody like U2 again. Because <laughs> even U2 has said, you know, it was a number of years ago now, but they said we couldn't get signed now, you know, like we did when we were younger, you know, because they're not an out of the box. Their first record did not have just a slam dunk, awesome number one hit single potential. You know, it's like, a lot of artists back in the day were signed because they had potential or because maybe they co-wrote one song with some other artist and they're like, hey, let's give Carly Simon a you know two or three album deal and see, you know, see what happens. Like that doesn't exist anymore. Yeah. Do you know Jimmy Necco from the band Ours? I don't. I remember that band though. Okay, well, I'm gonna send you a podcast. I spoke to him actually um a few months ago. He's in he was in a rock well, he is in a rock band called ours and they're coming to LA and they're putting out some new music. And he's one of my favorite singers of all time. I mean, we're talking Bono, Chris Cornell. I mean, he's that good. And I don't, I, I don't think rock somehow rock music. I don't think is ever going to be interesting to people again in a weird sort of way. And I think about like the Seattle scene that happened in the nineties. It's crazy to say, but I really think because of technology and people's attention span and there's no more mystery. You know, my aunt was at, saw Led Zeppelin at Madison Square Garden at the 70s. I mean, in hearing stories from her about being at that show, I mean, there's something about storytelling, not being there, but hearing stories from other people that were there where there's no, like those create I think curiosity and mystery and imagination. And I think those things are going away. And don't you think that the mystery, like what you're talking about, like the rock star on stage Mm -hmm. going to see Robert Plant, who's bigger than life like that, that doesn't really exist like it did back then because 
Robert Plant didn't have an Instagram account, right? <laughs> right. You know, they, they didn't. You 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 didn't have that direct connection with fans. Like, you know, when I was younger and wanted to become a drummer, it was Stuart Copeland for the from the Police. That was that was my guy. Yeah. So when I was sixteen, seventeen, eighteen really getting into to drumming and really identifying with him and the police. Like I worshiped that band and I worshiped Stuart Copeland. I had posters in my room, you know, it was one of those things, but they lived in my mind anyway, they lived in this other world. They didn't live in my world. They lived in this, this other world mm. of rock stars and concerts and music videos. And this was not a world that I was in. This was a world that I watched and I, you know, bought into and bought the records, but they lived in this other world. Like I never thought in a million, you know, million years I would ever meet Stuart Copeland just because he was larger than life. He was yeah. this, this other figure. And I think now with, and I'm from, you know, I, I follow his Instagram account now, of course, um, which is, which is great. But I think that that in a way sort of diminishes the, the wonder and not so much the fantasy, but the the allure and that thing that when you're younger, you don't even have to be young. It's like there's a certain mystery to it. And now that you can see what people do and sometimes they air their dirty laundry or they complain. And, and, and it, I mean, it's great that it brings them down to a human level because they are humans. But, you know, mm-hmm. that, that's the thing that happens as you get older. Your, your heroes, you find out are human and they're not perfect and they make mistakes, you know, and, the, and they're just like us. But that initial wow factor, I, I don't know if it's as what it used to be. I want to backtrack some. I'm just, where are you from? Los Angeles. You're here. Yeah, well, I was born in Inglewood and then raised in Orange County. So, okay. uh, Southern California, you could say. All right. I want to get to present day, but I'm just kind of curious... Because again, those story. I, I love hearing stories about how people are first intro- introduced to their creative passion. I just think there's these sort of organic things that happen when we're kids. I'm always curious about hearing, so I'm just curious, like under the age of ten, and then maybe ten to twenty, just what sort of was happening musically where oh, this was really cool, or this made me want to play the drums, or just sort of what was going on. My dad was a musician, and so he was always playing music with the bands that he would go and do shows with. Like he did, you know, local, local gigs, cruise ship gigs, and things like that. But he had a, we had a music room in the house, hmm. which my dad plays piano, he plays trombone, he plays bass. So there was drums and a piano and a stand-up bass in our house, which, you know, he would play and practice and I'd sometimes wander in. But the music bug didn't hit me till much later. But in terms of like under the age of 10, like there was like a pivotal moment. My dad bought vinyl records, obviously, because that was the thing to do back then. And what happens when you play records a lot is you, they get worn out and you have to buy new ones. And that's what happened with his Beatle records from like Rubber Soul to the White Album. And like at three years old, he gave he went out and bought new copies and he gave me his old ones. So I have these, I don't really have memories of being three or four years old with Beatle records, but I have these impressions because I had a little kitty turntable. I remember looking and listening to, especially the Beatle records, it was like this 
what they would call now a total immersive experience. Because as a kid, those record covers looked like they were 10 feet by 10 feet square. Yeah. And, and you would just get drawn into it. Music was my reality for all those really young years because I was always a music lover. Like, and I loved pop music. I loved, you know, stuff that was on the radio. And my dad had jazz records too, and I listened to a bit of it, but I was more of a, a pop junkie. Yeah. I remember being a little kid and I just had stacks and stacks of records and I would literally just sit there and go through them and listening to them. My friends would come over, we'd listen to them. And it was, like I said, that was kind of our, my reality to, to the world for a, a long time. But, yeah. but it wasn't until high school that something about Stuart Copeland and hearing the police just kind of clicked in my brain. Do you and, remember and, hearing them for the first time? Or because I can see why. I mean, he is one of the, in the drum world, considered one of the greatest drummers of all time. I think so. I mean, I knew he was different than a lot of other drummers. I didn't have the drumming vocabulary to know about syncopation and how he was influenced by reggae. I mean, I, I knew about it because people talked about it, but I didn't know until kind of years later. But, you know, I taught myself how to play two police records, Hmm. which just kind of seemed natural. And I think I inherited a good amount of musical DNA from my dad because, you know, he's an exceptional musician and, and I was able to kind of tap into what I was, you know, blessed with in, in my DNA. But I didn't really think like, oh, this is so syncopated or this is so hard. I just kind of figured it out. And, you know, it's, it's like you said you were a drummer. It's like you, you play the tune and you kind of sit there and, and figure it out. It wasn't until I didn't actually meet any other drummers until college. And the first thing you do, right, is you kind of jump on the drums. You start playing some beats. And, you know, most guys were playing you know, like ACDC beats, you know, like something, you know, more straight ahead. And I just started playing like Message in a Bottle or Walking on the Moon. You know, and they were like how do you do that? I'm like, how do you do what? They're like, how do you play like Stuart Copeland? And I just kind of did. And unbeknownst to me, learning his style, you know, worshiping, I mean, you know, I spent hours and hours trying to figure all that, those little bits out that that actually kind of propelled my, my drumming skills more so than I guess playing. I mean, nothing against ACDC because it's, it's driving and it has its purpose and, you know, it has its own challenges. Right. But, you know, it's like, studying a jazz drummer. I mean, I think Stuart Copeland is a little bit more like that. There's there's a little bit more to it. It's not so straight ahead and obvious what what's going on. You know, I don't remember the guy's name in Rush, but Neil Peart. They're clearly rock bands, but there are jazz, fusion, reggae, elements under everything going on and it, to me that's exciting you know of course alex van halen's one of the greatest drummers of all time but you know i think there just was a bit more nuance and a bit more different styles fusing together for the police i think so and there's all that space mm-hmm. you know the big difference too in andy summer's guitar playing is he played a lot of rhythm and he played a lot of clean guitar whereas most rock guitars, you know, have huge distortion and are playing power chords, and it's just this huge sound. And I think that's one of the reasons why a lot of rock drummers in those bands play a little more simple, is because the simpler thing is going to cut through all of that sound, yeah, right? Yeah. But the police, because you've just got chank, chank, <laughs> right, chank, 
there's all this room for the bass to be syncopated, of course, the drums to be syncopated. And the way that they all come together was kind of like a musical puzzle of, of, of sorts. Of course, I have a love for Stuart and the police. That'll never die. Were you bummed out when they broke up? Was that like a tragic moment for you? It seemed like when I really got into it, they had already kind of broken up. Okay, yeah. So it, it or they were on hiatus because right. I think they didn't really officially officially announce it till a, a while. But I mean, I actually saw them as a young kid um, during the Synchronicity tour. But I wasn't a drummer okay. back then, if that makes any sense. Because sure. it's like once you adopt an instrument, you start to to view the music world through the lenses of your instrument. Because as soon as I became a drummer. It was like that was all I could hear and see were what guys were playing and yeah you know so you like drums pretty much that was your instrument of choice yeah I think I mean you know how to play bass I've seen you like on Instagram or something but pretty much throughout the years drums was your thing yeah drummers can only do so much with rhythm if they want to be composers you have to uh, you know, play piano or guitar or bass. I'm curious, though. I mean, I'm sure in your 20s, you weren't thinking about becoming a composer. No. Are you in and out of bands? Are you drumming in bands? Is that sort of like what, what your thing out here in L.A. or California? Well, I made the transition to being Orange County guy. Like when I started playing professionally, I was in cover bands because that was the, you know, like I said, I didn't have friends that were in bands and I never was in an original band in the early days. You know, Red Mono Drummer took drum lessons and was like, oh, you want to be a professional drummer, you have to read and you have to play different styles. And I was totally down that path. But there was one moment where I was playing with a dude. I was playing like at the at a, a, like a hotel gig, like just a corporate gig playing jazz. Sure. And you're dressed up and I'm playing like Girl from Empanema or something for a bunch of people that aren't listening to the band. And the guy who I was, like, I remember the bass player, he was in his, like, mid-40s. And I remember looking at him, and we're playing, and I'm thinking, is this, is this my, is this it? Like, I've made it to this level, but this doesn't feel like, you know, being in the police. This doesn't feel like being in the music business. I'm playing a hotel in Orange County right. with, with a dude who's 45. I mean, there's nothing, you know, there's, there's no judgment. It was just a realization, like... Is this why I'm working so hard so to play jazz for nobody at the Anaheim Hilton or whatever it was? And that's when I was realized I got to actually, you know, do something in, in L.A. And I started auditioning for a lot of bands. This would have been in like 94, no, or 92, 93. And that's when I hooked up with the Young Dubliners. So oh, I, wow. I, I know that. They used to play at 14 Below all the time. Yeah. Well, if it was between 93 and 99, that would have been me. So I, I don't know if you were out here. Yeah, no, I, 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 I was living in Santa Monica at 14th and Broadway, probably late 90s. And I remember seeing them. So I think you must have. There was another band we, we did shows with called The Uninvited. Does that ring a bell? It does. Back then? There was also a band name that I love driving down 14th Street. There was a band name that used to play there called Anus. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I don't remember that band. Yeah, I know. But anyway, well, I just I have a, I remember driving by and always seeing that. So you used to play. That's amazing. I didn't realize that we had a little uh, place to play every Saturday night, which we did, and gathered up a pretty good following. Yeah, and eventually got a, a couple of record deals and did a first tour and vans, and then we bought an RV and then finally got up to the the level of like actually having a tour bus. So that was you know a good six year run when I was in it. 
So you auditioned for them, and they just they liked you right away, and yeah, it was it was funny. There used to be a store in Hollywood called Midi, Midi Drum Center, which, as an Orange County guy, uh, I would drive up there to to buy gear. And a friend of mine, Randy, who worked there, he knew that I was a drummer, and he had come to see some of the cover bands that I had played in. And I stopped by, and he's like, "Oh, how are you doing?" I'm like, oh, "I'm thinking about moving to L.A. I want to find a band, you know, to play with." And he looks at me and he goes. Well, my band's looking for a drummer, and you'd be the perfect guy. And and that was the Young Dubliners. I mean, I did audition, but yeah, sure. But um, that was how that happened. It was just kind of like a random occurrence. And then why did you why did you move on from them? Or you know, it's every situation has its its you know plus and minuses and. The band was successful enough that, you know, we did tour around the country and we had gone from being a club, a little local club band to playing like House of Blues on Sunset. I mean, I remember that that was a big deal. Definitely. To like sell out the House of Blues. Like that was a big deal for an L.A. band. And we, we did that, but we never quite got past that. But it was successful enough that I was on call, if that if that makes sense. Like, for instance, I remember one incident I was going to go to Japan for two weeks with an artist and, and do a little mini tour, but then something came up. So it just became like, you know, weighing your options. And also, you know, when you're in a band, it's just like when you go on tour supporting an artist, you only have so much say, if any, in what happens yeah. in terms of how long is the tour? You know, why are we doing this? Or you just kind of have to jump into it and, and be part of the team, even though you're not really leading the team or you're not part of directing what's going on. And and there was a little bit of that, you know, where, you know, the band was going in its own direction, which was fine, but I, I was really just itching to do other things. In fact, they actually got a new record deal right around the time I was leaving. And so people were like, why, you know, yeah, be- what are you doing? I think some people thought I got the gig with Beck. Like they're like, surely he got something and, and it was just time to move on. Were you thinking though, like I want to make I want to make music a career, and this isn't going to work out? Or you know, being a drummer for Young Dubliners, were you even aware of a plan? Well, it's funny you mention that. One of the things I think, at least for me, and I've talked about it with enough musician friends too, it's fairly common. You know, you start out as a mus- musician wanting to be successful, and <laughs> and especially if you want to earn money at it, you have to do different styles. You have to do gigs that you may not really want to, and you'd never say no to a gig, right? You just like, if you can do it, you'll do it. Yeah. But at a certain point, there becomes a place where you want to be, you, you realize you want to be intentional about what you're doing with your career, but you don't necessarily start out that way. Like, in other words, I didn't set out to be like the drummer of an Irish rock band. It was a series of you know, events that led me there, and I was happy to do it, for a while, you know, for a time, but it wasn't intentional, if that makes any sense. I mean, how did you go from that to becoming, I mean, were you talking to your dad or somebody about what is it like, did you ever think, huh, what's all that music playing in the background of that movie? Or were you thinking about where did that music, because you ultimately become uh, a composer right? for film, commercials, video games. You know, our friend Dan Silver. Sure. So we were in a band for about a year and a half called, oh. called the F band. And this, this was in the early two thousands. Okay. How'd uh, you guys meet through Swain house? Okay. Cause he was, he actually worked there at the time. Um, and then he 
became part of the band. And for a short while, anyway, we were in a band together. And he went off to start working at Riptide, which did music, does music yeah, for, still for film and TV. Uh-huh. And my wife and I had just moved to the Valley and bought a house. And I had just was just putting together my recording studio. Right. And it was it was one of those things. I mean, I, I, I knew what companies like that did, but I didn't do it. And I didn't really know anybody besides Dan who did that sort of thing, like making music for trailers or TV shows. I just kind of, like a lot of people, assumed that they just hire a composer and they all do it in-house. And it's not, it's not the case at all. They use a lot of music. You know, there's a ton of music licensing companies. Yeah. Through Dan, it was when I wrote or recorded my first pieces that I thought to give it a try. And like, I, I remember, you know, sending them to Dan and, and he loved it. And he, because he had more, way more experience than me at the time, he actually helped kind of teach me the craft of it and like how these things are supposed to sound because they have to have a certain sound that people want. Yeah. You know, unless you want to do an artist approach, but that's not what we're talking about. It's more like doing music that editors and music supervisors want for their, for their project. Yeah. Wow, so he really, I feel like you guys were kind of at the forefront of it all in a weird sort of way. He definitely more than I, because at the same time that I was doing work with him and his company, I had a recording studio. So my career, whereas the first part of it was me being more of a professional drummer and touring and playing in bands, when I got the recording studio, which was a little bit of an extension of that, it was more like having a place that I could record. And then as soon as I built the studio, people heard about it and they're like, Oh, you can record drums. And so I started doing, you know, drum tracks for people out of my, out of my studio. And that led to basically like 10 years of being a studio guy, you could say, yeah. where it wasn't just drums. It would be like, Oh, my pants, you know, we're recording this thing. Can we come and record? And so I kind of quickly learned about you know, engineering and producing for the good, you know, the first part, 10 years of, of the studio was working with other people in, yeah. in any capacity, you know? I mean, I did everything from comedy records to heavy metal records to voiceover work. Like, if you needed something done that I could do, I would do it kind yeah. of thing. And everybody's always looking for a drummer because, you know, I can record so much here, but I certainly can't record live drums here. Right. Well, I want to ask you about technology and how it's shifted a lot, but I, now is the perfect time to play a song. Okay. I think. Uh, but this is probably more recent, but I just want people to have an idea of, of you know, the kind of stuff you do. It's from Colorfield. Just t- explain this to me. What is this record? Because you sent it to me like five months ago or maybe, no, it was in May, I feel like. You sent it to me. That sounds right. Um, what, what is it? Cause this is obviously not some of the stuff that you were working on 15, 20 years ago, but, but talk to me about this album that you put out. Well, you know, we were talking about the music for trailers and film and TV shows and how they have to have a certain quality or a certain style to them, which I've done a lot of over, over the years with different companies that I've been working with. A lot of that music uh, up until recently never used to be accessible by the public. So it was kind mm. of frustrating as someone who was creating all this music, um, that it wasn't really out there in, in the world, so to speak. Like, you know, I didn't put out albums, but I just got to a point where I felt I had some music that didn't really fit into those worlds and that I wanted to make an effort to put out some music to basically show people that I can do cinematic type things. And especially coming from being known as a drummer and 
rhythm and all that sort of thing. I had these more ambient sounding tracks that I thought to my ears would be kind of interesting to just put out there and self-release an an ambient album. Well, I'm going to play the first track, Color Field, because I really, I mean, I listened to the whole thing, but I love that song a lot. Oh, cool. Yeah, so so yeah, we'll listen to that and uh, we'll talk after. the shift in technology for you as a composer did you have a board a mixing board and now you it's i mean how has it shifted thanks to tech is it i'm sure it's made your life easier um well i started basically on pro tools i mean i I grew up in in pro tools the short backstory is you know like my dad in addition to having a room full of instruments he did have like a four track reel to reel he just never got the tech bug i think he was more of a I just want to play music. I don't want to 
figure out the technology of recording it. Yeah. But I remember being like 13 and 14 and I would go out there and, and I figured out how to use that four track. And I eventually got an eight track. We'd make up little skits, you know, like little comedy skits, you know, right. stuff like that, because we didn't have smartphones, right? We kind of invented things that we wanted to, you know, do with our time. Yeah. <laughs> as, as opposed to check out this cool app or look at this YouTube video. Well, I'm curious, you know, how do you promote yourself now? Because back then, I'm sure it was word of mouth. Are you using Instagram to promote yourself? Uh, I mean, how does that working? <laughs> it's complicating. I know. Well, no, it's yeah, it is. It is complicated. But using technology in terms of self-promotion, that's almost like another job. It's almost like you have to put on your business promotion suit. Yeah. You know, and you really have to um, kind of separate because, you know, when you're in creative mode, and I think we've talked about this before, it's like being social media person as a creative person, it's, it's an interesting balance. And sometimes, honestly, it doesn't feel natural because I know that, you know, people say you want to give a little bit of what you do and how you do what you do, like share your work, that whole thing, which I totally believe in. Yeah. But there, there is this little infiltration of um, uh, uh, just the awareness that you're setting up your iPhone and trying to like stage a scene that looks cool. And then you're going to go and then do your thing on your keyboard or uh, set up the phone to, you know, get a good shot of the drums. Like it's, you kind of have to separate those two things because the creative part of you just wants to like do the work, but, yeah. the, but the business side of you knows um, or the social media side of you. I mean, I, they are connected, I guess knows the importance of there are certain people that kind of want to see what you do in terms of promotion. It's more about wanting people to see and hear the kinds of things that I do and not just necessarily see it on a bio or my website, like actually show something interesting that you're doing because I had this realization not too long ago that people do want to see it, not because I'm so awesome or because I'm some big celebrity there's just people, especially younger people, who want to be a musician or they want to be a music producer or they want to be a drummer and they might find your Instagram or they might find you know your Facebook page and you can you can inspire them. You can provide something you know to them and what they want to do more so than the approach of like, you know, check me out and you should subscribe to my channel or you should follow me because I'm just so cool and I'm a badass. You know, like yeah. that's 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 never been where I've come from you know trying to balance all those things is something i'm still working on because right for everything that you do in terms of creating a little instagram post like you were saying the time it takes to do a podcast like people hear the episode but what they don't hear is how much time you've spent making that episode yeah and all these things take time and most of these things you're not getting paid as you do it right so you yeah. have to you know you have to balance that thing it's it's hard i think it's it's challenging for sure i really think napster and then spotify it created the downward facing spiritual spiral of our culture and any it it ruined the record industry and then it also created an environment where artists have to do a lot of the marketing and pr themselves and there's only 24 hours in a day and I think it is why music isn't as good as it used to be. It, it sonically sounds digitally awesome, although that could be argued as well. 
I don't think artists are focusing like they used to. And I think they're spending time on Instagram instead of, but they, you almost, you kind of have to, which is so fucked up to say, right. You know, part of me feels like this podcast of mine and this book that I'm writing could explode if I spent more time marketing, but you know, it, requires so much time to do a podcast. It requires hours to write a book. I've put all my other creative pursuits aside to get this stupid book done. And there's, and I also want to like have a social life and take care of myself. And it's just, it's crazy how much time the world expects us to spend on social media. If you're an artist, when all you're really wanting to do is create. Right. And it does take time away from it because even, like I said, if you're working on something and it doesn't apply to music, it could be any, you know, someone painting. Like I've, I found some cool people uh, on Instagram that, you know, do painting and it's the same for them. They have to, okay, now they have to set up the shop, uh, set the shot up to look good. And now they're going to do an Instagram live of what they're, what they're doing. And, you know, that it kind of invades in that creative space. And it's not that it's bad. It's just more that it becomes one more thing to think about and to account for and being self-conscious about that too. It's hard. It's hard to say. So the downward spiral came from, from, uh, from Napster? Is that where it came from? Well, I mean, I think... Well, the, I always thought it was the Instagram. Well, I think present-day Instagram, but I think looking back, because where we are today, it wasn't... I think Instagram has somehow captured every ounce of our soul and manipulated us and tricked us into thinking that people are much happier than they really are and through the algorithms and through who we follow and the filters they that stupid freaking social media platform has has as one of my guests said like ripped our souls out from underneath us now i don't think it came out of nowhere i think television in a way started it somehow people and then going to cable and then reality TV shows. Somehow people became so intrigued with reality shows and watching car chases and then paying attention to celebrities. And then we wanting to feel like celebrities and then we needing more attention. And then it it was this, I, I think it started probably 20, 30 years ago. And then the iPhone, having these things in our pockets. I mean, I don't think Steve Jobs, his intention was to get a culture addicted to their computers in their pockets, but that's what's happened. Right, because the first iPhone didn't have apps. No, of course not. It was basically, let's put this cool music player and couple it with a phone. Right. And that was pretty much it, which was, which was awesome. Um, but then... We have been, I, again, I, I don't 
want to say that we're weak-minded, but maybe we really are. You know, we're so easily tricked into thinking that we don't have it as good as we could have it. And so then we keep adding more things to our lives to fill supposed holes that maybe really aren't even there to begin with. But we live in this day and age now where people aren't comfortable sitting with a day of sadness thinking that, oh my God, maybe there's something wrong with me because, but then you think that something's wrong with you because you look at Instagram all day and everybody's having a great time. Right. So the show title, I think, and of course I always loved the, the, the downward spiral from nine inch nails. So I, I wanted to add a little bit to that because I couldn't just call it the downward spiral. Right. But, um, yeah, I just think now where we're, we're at it's it's a confusing time and i'm just i mean in i remember we, you were going to come on my show about a year ago i feel like and it didn't happen for i'm not saying this with any sort of um none taken yeah it's just offense or anything <laughs> no but i but then i remember like we started talking about cal newport right and you texted me a photo that you got the book and of course i ended up reading it so like all this stuff that i'm talking about clearly i feel as though my show and the things i'm talking about probably strike a chord with you and oh totally so what's how so or what do you mean well i think the cal newport book and if people don't know it's called digital digital minimalism which is a great book it should be required reading i think for anybody that that thinks about these things but uh i think that's actually the the problem is people don't think about these things and you know i wasn't able to articulate for a long time when it comes to tech especially the smartphone and social media you know, especially in the days of even MySpace, you know, everybody was going crazy, like posting and trying to get more friends like it. it, it and when bands got on MySpace, there was this big rush to try to get as many people following you as possible, which turned out to be a bust because it didn't really mean anything in, yeah. in the end. But there's this 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 idea that that we we download all the uh, all the apps and some new update comes up and there's this notification of this and you know all these things like what you're saying too is it's designed to make us feel like we need to give it attention or we need to update oh we need to get this app and oh version 2 is way better than version 1 and and we've start you know we've adopted it and for the longest time I couldn't quite articulate until recently and especially with the Cal Newport book and it's basically this it's like just because we can doesn't mean we should, or maybe another way of, of saying it is adopt this technology and we just like bring it on. Yeah, I want that. That sounds good. This is cool. Oh, wow. Did you see that? All along the while, we don't sit there and going, should we be doing this? I mean, I know that's more of a philosophical position, but I think it's an important one. Like, what are you doing with your social media? Why are you spending three hours? You know, have you ever seen the time amount per week that you spend on the screens? Like, that could be a real wake up call for yeah. a lot of people. It has been for me. I'll get a little nof- notification, you know, like this week, you know, you're up five hours, you know, or something. <laughs> yeah. And it's like, what did I do? You know? And, but people don't, are not very aware of what they're doing with their, with their technology. I mean, I'm still trying to figure it out myself. I'm no expert, you know? I, I, did you, I feel like, was it around the start of my show or had you been thinking about, it it had been back there for sure because okay. the, you but know what was what was making you aware what was making you sort of get become like pause and think to yourself 
What am I doing? Well, I remember being in the the F band, like back with with Dan Silver. Like I remember when like MySpace came out, and there was this thing. And I remember me and F would spend hours like friending people on on MySpace. And I remember thinking, what the heck are we doing? Oh, we have to do this because this is the new thing. This is what we're supposed to be doing. And yeah. I mean, you know, it it's kind of always been there. A little bit of like, why am I doing this? But again, m- most of the time it just gets squashed immediately because something new pops up or something gets recommended. And then all of a sudden you're on the downward spiral and you're like, yeah, wait, three hours ago, I thought I was going to, you know, change, you know, do, do this. And you went down a rabbit hole. You know, it's funny. I told my son who's 12, I was telling him about coming on the podcast and, uh, I asked him, I said, I said, I know you look, cause he loves technology, right? He's a kid, sure, you know, yeah. and he doesn't have a smartphone, but he does have an iPad, which, we keep on a leash, so to speak. You know, he gets only a certain amount of time, um, you know, per week. And I asked him, I go, I, I know how much you love technology, but I'm just curious if if you had to name, you know, one thing about technology that's bad. And guess what he said? He goes, it's addictive. Huh. And that is like the perfect answer, right? I mean, it is addictive. So he's even aware that... I, I was kind of surprised. Well, I mean, he's my son, you know, and my wife and I do... I think a good job of letting him understand why he has rules. And and it kind of got me thinking too, like, sure, you're a kid, your job as a parent is to establish rules and they have to be respected. And if they don't abide by the rules, then the technology t- gets taken away, right? So he, for example, he only gets technology two out of two days during the school week and he's on it in the weekends, but it's a limited time, right? Yeah. He's just not always on. He doesn't have a phone that he's always going to, even though a lot of his friends at school, a lot of them have phones. We're like, no, a 12-year-old doesn't need a smartphone. Like, nothing's going to happen at school that he's going to need a smartphone to like, (laughs) you know what I mean? Like, yeah, if anything happens, I'm sure that's what the school would do. But it made me think for us as adults, and like your podcast, I think the the last one I heard, you were talking about binge watching on Netflix. uh Like, we don't put these rules to us, like, you know, you are not going to be able to binge watch, you know, 12 episodes in one day. Like, we just do it without thinking. Like, well, my, my wife and I devoured the whole season of um, Stranger Things 3 when it came out. And, you know, it's, I mean, it is binge watching, but I kind of look at it like it's like an eight-hour movie, essentially. Yeah. But still, it's like, that's eight hours, you know? Yeah, I mean, the world really wants you to stare at Netflix or your phone 24 hours a day. And I I have this strange, I have this, like, imagination where people have, like, three phones. One's on Netflix, one's on Amazon Prime, and one's on the new Disney TV or whatever it's called. And I just watched the Showtime Escape at Donna like, four or five months ago. Or have you seen it? Mm -mm. It's incredible. And I think about, you know, 10, 20 years ago, people watching an episode of Hill Street Blues or I don't know, I'm just even seeing Melrose Place or something. You know, we all knew the next day at work or something that everybody, there was a commonality. There was a community. Most likely people saw Hill Street Blues or The Cosby Show 
Melrose Place or 90210, you know, you go to work tomorrow or you go to the local coffee shop or the barber shop and who the fuck knows what anybody watched last night because there's like 8,000 things that people could have consumed. And I do think it is creating um, a huge disconnect. And I have, I mean, I will suggest a show to you and who knows if you watched it, who knows if you'll have the time because you have a family and you have a business and and there's things that are being flooded you every single day. It's just... Well, and the content never goes away. That's the other part of it too, right? And yeah. it's, it's just like music. Now, every music, every kind of music, even including classical music, is at your fingertips 24 hours a day. And the same with TV shows. It's like, you know, before, before you had streaming and access to all these things... Melrose Place was on what was like Monday night at nine o'clock or whatever it was yeah. on once a week, and that was it. Then you didn't have TIFO, TiVo. You didn't, you know, record these things. It was like you had to commit to like watching that show when it when it aired. You know, yeah. or I guess you had VCRs. I'm, there was a little bit of that. <laughs> yeah, but but you know what still, I'm saying. Sure. It was it was more of like you had to make the time to commit to it, and there wasn't all this competing content. Yeah. Do you feel as though, um, do you have his glass half empty perspective on what's going on? Are you more hopeful? Um, do you, and do you feel as though music isn't as good as it used to be? Do you feel as though, um, you're, do you ever notice that you're being manipulated by technology or I don't know. I just, I feel like Netflix, it's all a formula. It's rare that I watch a show that has the depth or the thought as let's say, you know, six feet under or something on HBO. I I think, and the problem is because Netflix is so powerful, it's forcing everybody else to create like they're creating. Right. And here's another point. I think I think about in a music reference, I think about a ditty. You know, a little you know, a little ditty where, you know, for ten seconds you play something kinda cool and fast and or a quick groove or something on the drums that's really fast and hitting every little part or double double kicks at the same time. But everybody's making little ditties. <laughs> <laughs> that's true. I mean you you mean in terms of like people on social media? Is that what you mean? Because you jumped from Netflix, I was just yeah. I mean, I mean, well, in a way though, I feel like Netflix, in its own way, is a little ditty. Like because I don't think their shows. Of course, there's a couple when they see us or Mindhunter. Again, these are made by people that already had a track record, though Ava DuVernay and um, David Fincher. But I I do get the sense that Netflix is also a little ditty. Like they're really, it's about. As fast as you can, as much as you can, fill space. We need to grab this by Ryan Murphy. Get him over here. Keep making, making, making. Like the first season of American Horror Story was one of the greatest shows I've ever seen. But then they keep funneling them, funneling them out on FX, and they feel like ditties. They're they're literally not as. It's just I don't know. I'm, and I'm not trying to be all high on like the mansion on the hill up here. Oh, all you because I, I I just don't see creative creativity as good as it used to be because everybody's more interested or or tricked into making ditties. I can see your point. I mean, if you hadn't seen the first season of American Horror Story and then you saw the fourth, 
would you be as impressed seeing the fourth season for the first, you know, being the first thing, you know? Yeah, yeah. I don't know. I, I, I think I'm a little less um, critical about those things because I, I love American Horror Story and um, Ozark. Yeah. And Ozark especially, like trying to explain that show, and even Orange is the New Black, like you have these rough, you know, uh, you know, descriptions that you can say to people but I think all these shows are pretty unique in terms of like Ozark. Ozark is not a crime drama, right? It's not like Hill Street Blues. It's not like Melrose Place. It's not a situation, you know, it's, it's kind of its own thing. And especially yeah. the characters and what the story is, I think Orange is the New Black was a lot like, like, like that for me too. It wasn't just, oh, women in prison movie. You know, it's, it's not like that at all. It's the characters. I like those shows. I thought Stranger Things was great. It's, you know, that's taste, I think. Yeah. You know, personal preference, maybe. Yeah, I don't... I want to ask you one last thing before I let go, but I, I don't... I'm not looking... You know, there's nothing more exciting to me as a human being to be taken on a journey that, that like, moves me. I mean, Six Feet Under was just like... I love that show. God, I mean, first season American Horror Story, Fargo on television... I don't know if you've seen that. No. Wow, you have to see those. I like the movie. Oh, uh, the movie's great. Well, they turn into a TV show for FX. Um, like OK Computer, Wildflower, Sea Change, Ten, um, Super Unknown. I mean, we crave to be taken on creative journeys that move us and ultimately inspire us. And I don't like. You know, the first season of Ozark was really good, but I felt the second season, I found it to be, it fell flat. And I, I think the way that Netflix writes shows, I can't prove this, they're more interested in writing a plot twist at the end to get you to watch the next episode as to, or like a surprise ending. That's definitely the thing. Yeah, for sure. I mean, the, I, the cliffhanger. I pick up on that. And that's always, that's been a tool that's been around obviously for years, let's face it. But I get the sense that there was less reliance on it. I, I just feel it when, when I watch a show, it, they just, it pretty uninteresting. And in the last five minutes, they're doing something and that's enough to get you to watch the next one. Right. And there's, there's moments of that in shows, right? Where they might have an episode that just is kind of like, just lingering on. You're like, nothing's really happening. Nothing's really connecting. And then they, they hook you at the end. Like they reintroduce this character or the bad guy turns around, you know, it's like something, something, something happens. And now you're like, Damn, now I kind of watch the next yeah. episode. I, I can see that. So I guess my point is is that, you know, even radio had one of my favorite artists of all time. You know, Moonshape Pool, I just thought was so terrible. But I, and this is the other thing, I feel like we live in a day and age now where we can't criticize anything. And we are thought called like a hater. And I also feel like people are scared to tell somebody that that could be better. And you actually may be doing this person a favor. Like, I'm just curious. It's not even if you agree or disagree with me, but, you know, when you're as a composer sort of in your studio all by yourself, how do you know if something's good? How do you know if something could be better? How do you weigh that in your mind as a, as a creator? You kind of don't, I don't yeah. think, ultimately, because I think I heard it best. Someone said, you know, a piece of music or an album it's just something you give up on at a certain point. Hmm. You just stop because you could record an album for the rest of your life, or you could work on this tune 
for the next four weeks and do nothing else. And there is this balance and because you, you, you do want to get into the details and especially when it comes to wanting to make music that's cinematic and, and looks good with picture, you can't just like dial it in and just find some random synthesizer sound that you, you actually have to put some focus on it and you have to, you know, really get into the details but those are the exactly the things that can take weeks or months or you know years to finish. So how, you know what is the right answer? The way I sometimes think about it is really understanding where that point of diminishing returns starts to hit. Like in other words, hmm. you might be working on a piece and maybe you started out with some organ sound, for example, and that that was the beginning. And then you develop the piece and you're getting towards the end. You're like. Well, that was just a thing I sketched with. Maybe I can find a better organ sound. And so you go and spend three hours going through all the different organ sounds you have, only to come back to the to realizing that first one was perfect. Even maybe it was, you know, just a little, you know, a little stock plug-in or something that somebody might go, "Well, why did you use that?" You know, it's it's the same with microphones. It's like people might say you can never use a, a 57 to record a vocal, right? There's, there's all these like yeah. things that you hear, but it's a, it's a matter of getting a, a, a grip on that and just knowing intuitively um, that this is actually working. And yeah, sure, you could spend the next four hours um, you know, fine-tuning this little detail, but the truth is, in the big picture, it's a minor detail that's not really going to make a difference. There's all these different competing theories, but in, at the end of the day... You want to get it done. Yeah. So it is a matter of just being able to say and evaluate it and just go, this is it. See, I used to think you were giving up on it. Like, oh, it's good enough. No, it's not even that it's good enough. It's fine. It's, it's the thing. It's got that quality that you need, even though in the back of your mind, the little critic comes out and says, well, you could do it better. Well, yeah, you could keep going for the next four years and then have one piece of music to show for it. You kind of, it's just like when we're talking with social media, like there's a little, you know, there's a little ringer going off in your head when you've been on Facebook for 45 minutes and you won't, you were only going there to check, you know, to see if, um, you know, so-and-so had, you know, messaged you back. Cause yeah. some people like to message on Facebook and then it's like 45 minutes later. Yeah. You checked your message, but then you got down that, downward spiral of Facebook for 45 minutes. It's like, there's a little, you know, there's a little voice in your head that, that is there at all times. Like, dude, you got work to do. Check the message. Don't go, don't go in there. And and that's hard to do. Right. I mean, that's yeah. what we're talking about is being mindful of that and knowing how tempting it is. And like my son said, like how addictive it can be because it's designed that way. Like the like button, like reading that Cal Newport book, I was the when he talked about the invention of the like button for Facebook, like that was a big, a big, big deal that they spent a lot of time and money developing. And you know, I just thought, oh, it was just a feature. No, it's not yeah. just a feature. It was by design to keep you in, you know, their eco, their digital ecosystem. Yeah, I recorded a podcast maybe four months ago how that like feature has ruined the world. I mean, seriously, because we have become so obsessed with getting a like, we aren't able to give it anything else. 
Like that's that's your only option. Or you, a commenting, right? But yeah, then but that, then that, you that, open that, up that door of possibly trolling or then other then and then you create quote unquote conversations online. So it's a slippery slope with the comment, I think. The other thing I, I remember from that Cal Newport book, The Digital Minimalism, was the the neuroscience behind some of it that he got into in terms of like we think because it's called social media that we're being social with other people, right? That's why it's called social media, whoever invented that term. But he goes into the neuroscience and actually what they've been finding out in terms of the brain and the sections of the brain that are there to be receptive to social interactions. Like we are social creatures, right? Like people cannot survive by themselves. You know, they, we, we want and crave social interaction. And when we're on social media, we think we're being social, but what they're finding is those areas in the brain, those physical areas where that activity gets, gets triggered are not being triggered by social media and by being on screens. We think we're being social, you know, you and I might exchange a message or you might like my thing, but uh, it's it's not like you and I in a studio physical space right now where you, I can see your facial your facial expressions and you can see mine and and like there's a whole dimensional experience going on right now even though we're just sitting in your studio and talking you don't get a fraction of that and that part of the brain that wants that is not getting it yeah no it's powerful stuff you know what i was thinking also before i say goodbye i i think people don't realize how important music is to movies and television shows i have seen shows and movies before without like before the music was put in cuz i've done a little bit of music and like for a couple independent films or short films and it's wild to see it without the music. I mean, they really do need each other. Don't you think? Oh, well, it depends on the show, of course. But yeah, exactly. Hmm. Yeah. And, and they're all connected. And music sometimes is a little bit of sound design and effects as well as just music, music, too. I mean, it depends on if you're talking about is it more score or is it like a song? But I'm assuming you're talking more about a score. Yeah, and I, and I think, yes, and I think music does, it's hard to explain, but I do feel like, you know, you could watch somebody making out or getting into an argument, which will certainly create something, but it's almost like the music helps you experience the experience a little bit deeper. Is that fair to say? Absolutely. I mean, it's all about the storytelling, right? It, yeah. Like it should help create that mood or it should help push the story forward. But I think most of the time, the trick is not making music that you notice in a certain sense. Mm -hmm. Like the function of music, in most cases, especially in movies, it's like reverb. Like when you're doing a mix, it's like it needs reverb and you should hear it, but you shouldn't notice it. Like you could hear the music and it should support everything that's going on in the scene or in the movie, but you shouldn't actually notice it. Like, you know, what takes you out of the, the picture, so to speak. Yeah. Like it should, it should be there in function and in the back of your mind, you, you, you know, you hear it, but you're not necessarily like noticing it and going, why do they put electronic in? You know, <laughs> like there, there's those moments sometimes, right. When you're watching something and then you do notice the music and that, and that's when it's not working. Yeah. In my opinion. Anyway. Yeah. 
Well, John Maddox, thanks so much for talking. I, I appreciate, so you have two Instagrams. John Maddox and John Maddox Drones. Easy. That's um, easy. And what's like, what's next for you? Just more scoring TV, you know, like what's the next, what's your goal for the next couple of years? More of the same or, or what are you thinking? Um, it's really, well, kind of figuring that out too at the moment. Cause this whole idea of wanting to be intentional with what you're doing in your mm. career. Um, I think more of the same in terms of yes, working with different companies that I work with in terms of getting music out there. But I, I do think that there's, you know, I've been trying to forecast into the, the, the future, like 10 years, like what's the state of music going to be in 10 years and music licensing. There's a lot of competing thoughts, you know, and in terms of revenue that comes from royalties, from TV shows and cable shows, like on what they call terrestrial TV, mm-hmm. right? That's what a lot of us, you know, get part of our income from. But as more things start to go streaming, I mean, this is a, a, a kind of another whole conversation, but as more things get go to streaming, what we're being told is to say, well, yes, streaming on Netflix is not paying you as much as having something on like NBC, right? That's just the, the way it is right now. Um, which is good if you have stuff, you know, on, on network TV, but as more stuff goes to streaming and it will, I think at some point it's going to, it's going to go all streaming that, Oh, surely at that point, the companies will have bigger revenue and they'll be paying bigger royalties at that point in the future. So there's this thought that, Oh, we should surely, Oh yeah, they'll, they'll get bigger and we won't have anything to worry about in the future. And it's not that I'm pessimistic. It's just more like I think that that whole world is going to change. And we we don't know if it's going to be in our benefit. And one thing we know about the music business is it's not always in the, you know, creator or music creator's benefit. You know, we're fighting for every last little nugget we can we can collect. Right. Yeah. Long story short is the idea of not being so reliant on other companies Hmm. to to solely bring in income that there's more entrepreneurial stuff that every single one of us can do in terms of our skills, our specialized skills, whatever it is that we do. Like in my case, there's composing, there's, there's drums, there's recording technology, and there's ways, you know, whether it's like writing a book, like, like what you're doing or tutorials or some way, or, or even teaching or mentoring. Hmm. I, I think that I'm at the point where I'd like to investigate that as well as what I am doing, because the last thing anybody any of us want to do is be like got you know getting cut with the the rug pull out from under us you know you want to be on the front side of that as opposed to like going oh what am i going to do now yeah if that makes any sense no it completely makes sense it's smart well john man i appreciate you coming over here taking time i know you're busy thank making, you making a part of the i just being a part of the show I, it means a lot for you taking the time well thank you i enjoy the show a lot yeah man well, thanks again. I, I appreciate it. I would love to come by the studio in the Valley and check it out. That would, that would be awesome. Like once I've turned down offers to like jam and write because I'm, I have to get the book done. So my goal is to have it done like January ish at the latest, get a publisher, get an agent, sell it and then get back to music again. So that's, that's my, that's my plan. That's good. You yeah. have a goal. Yeah. So, um, that would be awesome to head over there. So I, again, I really appreciate you being part of the show. Thank you.